right, well, let's get into our study. Now, the other thing is, if you look on the back page of your thing, there's a chart there. And this is something that Bob Orr has been working on for quite some time because he is very uh, observant about things in ways that I am not. Maybe you've picked up on that in our class here. And so anyway, I'm not sure, Bob, if I want you to come up and do this first or if we want to wait until we get to those verses that deal with the bowls. Your choice. My choice. And you think it'll be about a 20-minute nap for me? Okay. Well, um, why don't we have you do that, and then when we get to that part in the reading, then we'll all kind of know. And then I think what we'll do is include the chart in in subsequent lessons. So like next week, we'll see it again, the week after that. Because again, it's, it's pretty involved and detailed, but it pertains to the next three chapters of, uh, of Revelation. So I want to have that reference point. So can we do that? Would you be willing to do that? Yeah, right now. Yeah. And then that way I'll give you the, I'll give you the mic. For a second there, I thought Jesus had joined us. That's amazing. <laughs> wow, good luck. Moses look at yeah. Good luck. Yeah, part the Red Sea. All right, let me do this. You hear me okay? Can you hear me okay? Okay. Awesome. Great. Good. Thank you. I don't want to spill your coffee here. Yeah, I'm going to grab my coffee. I put him on the spot, but then, hey, that's the theme for the day. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, I, uh, if you think I'm going to explain everything that's in the book of Revelation, you might as well go someplace else. Because all the only thing I've done is try to provide a little roadmap to find your way through the book of Revelations. I've been reading this book for, I don't know, 50 years. And it seems like it's just a stream of events to me, one following right after the next after the next. And so I tried to find some connection between the two so that, you know, why is this one here? Why is that one there? And uh, that's the reason I made this sort of a roadmap. I wanted to, and I had plenty of time because we're going to be studying this for the next two to three years, I figured, <laughs> at the rate we go. And, uh, and this book, I went through it, I've read through it, I don't know, probably a dozen times in the past uh, three weeks. And it has about 70 events in it. And they all seem sort of individualized if, you, if you're not careful with it. So I tried to make some kind of connection with it and to see what connections are there. We are looking at it like the bottom of a tapestry. And we're looking at all the threads and the knots and the stuff like that. And... In heaven, they're looking at the top of the tapestry and they see the whole thing. And it makes sense to them, whereas with us, uh, we're not quite sure of what's going on. Most of, at least I'm not. Maybe everybody else here understands the book of Revelations, but I haven't found a commentator that does. So uh, I don't feel too bad about it. So when I did this, I said, this is a book of sevens. Everything in it is seven, seven, seven. So if you look at the top of that chart, and I'm just going to go through this chart. I don't have a nice big view graph that I can put it up on the wall. I'm, that dates me a little bit with a view graph, but uh, I would use that. But anyway, if you go across the top of the chart, the first row up there, I got it labeled one through seven. And basically, that's the book of Revelation. The introduction is chapter one. And that's the introduction of the book. John tells where he is. And he introduces us to the letters to the churches. 
which is chapter 2 and 3. And then chapter 4 is another introduction. And in chapter 4, John is called up into heaven. So he's no longer on earth. He's up in heaven looking down on this, this tapestry, if you want to put it that way. And then he writes the book. But unfortunately, when he writes it, he has to write it linearly instead of all at once. And so all the rest of the book of Revelations is John looking down from heaven. So it's a different viewpoint. And that's the reason I think it, it's confusing because the letters are pretty straightforward. But once you get to the seals and the trumpets and the dragons and the beasts, chapter 12 to 14, uh, all of those, he's looking at it from the top. And then you go to chapter 15, which I think is where we are today. And uh, that is kind of a wrap up of the dragons and beasts and an introduction to the bowls. And then you've got the bowls 16 and 17. And then you've got judgment, which is 17 through 20. And then you've got the new heaven, new earth, new Jerusalem. Well, if you take a look at that, it starts off with the letters to the church. It tells you what the status of the church is in John's day. And it's about the same today. People don't change over 2,000 years. So our church and the churches around us are about the same as those churches. All they did was change the names. And then it ends with a new heaven and a new earth. So what did you do? You start out with the church today and you end up with the glorified church and everything in between that is what's happening in the book of Revelation. So it's got bookends on it that start with the church and end with the church. Okay, I took the center part, which is the seal through judgment, and made the main part of this chart, which is the, essentially the confusing part of uh, the book of Revelations. Like I say, the letters are pretty straightforward. The new heaven and new earth, it's a description of what it's going to be at that time, and that's fairly straightforward, although it's a pretty fantastic uh, revelation. Okay, so we start on the left side of the paper with the seals, and we've gone through those in class here. We've got the one through seven going, going down the column. Like I said, everything's in sevens on here. So one through seven, you've got the, the four horse of the apocalypse, You've got the martyrs under the altar. You've got the terror and the day, great day of wrath. And then you've got the sealing of the saints, which completes the, the column under the seals. You go to the next column, which is, starts right next in the next chapter, and that's the trumpets. We've got the seven trumpets. And you go down there, and the first trumpet blows, and it's hail and fire and blood, and one-third of the earth is burned. And then you've got one-third of the sea turned to blood and one-third of the waters, fresh waters turned to blood. And then one-third of the sun, moon, and stars were darkened. So you've got those three things which attack the environment. Then you've got the bottomless pit opened up and the locusts of Satan torment the people for five months, except the ones that are sealed. And then you've got the four, four angels at the Euphrates River, and one-third of mankind is killed. And then it ends up with the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. Now, I sort of, I don't know if it shows up good on your print, but I highlighted all those across the bottom of the page because those are the ends of each one of these columns. And if you'll notice, all of those says it's complete. They all say, this is the final act. It's time for the final judgment. So these things don't go first here, second here, third here, fourth here. They all go at once. In other words, some of these things have happened. Some of them 
are ongoing. Some of them are going to be done in the future. So you can't go with our linear way of thinking when you look at the book of Revelations. In God's world, everything is now. If you look at the verse I've got at the bottom of the page from Isaiah, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is no one like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things which have not been done, saying my purpose will be established and I will accomplish my good pleasure. In other words, God's in charge. And he's got, as far as I know, have been able to determine the whole universe was in the mind of God before anything was created. That means you were in his mind, I was in his mind, everybody was in his mind before anything was created. When were the names put in the book of life? Before the foundations of the earth. So God, everything in God's mind is done. Just like the death and resurrection of Christ was done before the first, for, uh, before God created the world. So he knew it was going to happen, and when he knows it's going to happen, there is no doubt about it. It happens. God doesn't have a plan B, and this is his plan A, and I wish he had written it a lot clearer, but he didn't. <laughs> anyway, the third one column coming down is the dragon and the beast, and the, and the woman with child. And, you got the, and I looked at that, and I said, this looks like a column that... Uh, focuses on Satan attacking the church. In other words, you've got the woman with child who is the uh, body of believers. You've got the red dragon coming down, which is Satan. You have a male child born, which is Christ. He is immediately taken up into heaven. Now, in the time frame, time frame we're talking about, he was taken up in 30 years. But nevertheless, he was taken up into heaven. And then you've got the dragon. He is thrown down. Now, the dragon was thrown down. If you read the book of Ezekiel, I think it's uh, chapter 26, the dragon was thrown down way back in the beginning. So you can't take a timeline on this. You have to say, when was that really done? In our time, that was done clear back at probably the Garden of Eden. So, and then the dragon tries to make war with the woman. He can't do it, so he makes war with the children of the woman. And who are the children of the woman? We are. We are the children of the church. <clears throat> so the dragon goes and gets his friends, the beast out of the sea and the beast from the earth, which is the next two rows going across. And then at the end, with the beasts attacking the children of, of, uh, the, of the uh, woman, who says, blessed are those who die in the Lord. And then the reapers come. Now, the reapers have been in, are in numerous books of the Bible. The reapers, of course, are the ones that harvest the grain and separate the wheat from the tares. And we've got two reapers. One of them is Christ, the Son of God, and he reaps those who are saved. And then you've got two angels that reap those who are unsaved. So you're back, you're essentially doing the white throne judgment. Clear back here in, in the uh, section four. The next section that's coming down is the bowls of wrath, which is chapter 16 and 17. And that puts sores on the people with the mark of the beast and attacks the earth. Once again, blood in the sea, blood in the rivers, and it poured out on the sun and scorched men <coughs> with fire and no repentance. Now, if you take a look at the trumpets, 
and the bowls of wrath, those two columns. You have first, it attacks the earth, and the second one attacks the sea, the third one attacks the rivers and, and fresh water, and the fourth one attacks the heavens, and they're parallel. But in the trumpets, they're limited to one-third. There are no limitations in the in bowls of wrath. That is God's final judgment, his, his final uh, putting wrath on the people. And then you've got uh, underneath that one, you've got uh, the, uh, he put, the wrath is poured out on the throne of the beast and his kingdom is darkened. That means it's pretty well done away with. Now you've got, it's poured out on the river Euphrates where there are again four angels and the river dries up and it makes way for the kings of, kings of the earth, uh, kings of the east. And at Armageddon they, uh, they uh, gather. And then at the end, it says, this is it. This is the final. It is done. Then victory for the Lamb. Now we still got to go through the judgment. And the judgment is the last column. Chapter 17 through 20. Babylon, the harlot, is judged. Now Babylon, the harlot, to me, is a world power. Any, any world power uh, that tries to gain power and take it away from God is Babylon. Then you have the four four hallelujah, and why? Because the Lord reigns now. Babylon is destroyed, and the Lord reigns. And then you have the marriage feast of the Lamb, and then the coming of Christ and the King of Kings. And the beast and the false prophet are judged in the next one. They're thrown in the lake of fire. And in <coughs> level six, Satan is judged and doomed. He comes, he's uh, judged and thrown in the pit for a thousand years. He comes back for a short time and he gathers the armies of Gog and Magog, which if you once again go to Ezekiel about chapter 39, you'll read about the battle of Gog and Magog. And then we have the white throne judgment where the books of, of uh, life are opened up and the books of deeds are opened up. Now, if you look at uh, level six under the bowls of wrath and under the judgment, you have the armies of the kings gathering in Armageddon and you have Gog and Magog armies. I'm probably the same army. It's supposed to be millions. Is God worried? Not really. Read, read uh, Psalm 2. The kings of the earth take issue against God and what does he do? He laughs at them and scoffs at them. What does he do here? He sent a little fire down there and we had crispy critters. <laughs> That's how worried God is about our power in this earth. All of our atomic weapons uh, don't even hold a candle to the stars in the universe. Okay, so we've, we've, I covered the, the uh, center thing, and I figure that is, uh, like I said, the, the dragon attacking the church and the, and the people in the church. The two bowls, the bowls of wrath and the trumpets come down together, and uh, basically... It is done at the bottom of both of them. The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord. So both of them are completed except the bowls of wrath. God in many places in the Bible says, I have to tear down and destroy before I can build up. And he tears down and destroys, and then he builds up the new heaven and the new earth and the new Jerusalem. Now, going back to the seals, which is the first column on here, I think that is a judgment of man upon man. In other words, 
the conqueror and the, con the conquest is man going out and trying to rule over other people. And what does that cause when they try that? That causes war, famine, and death, and pestilence. So when you take that, and the, so the, the, I look at that whole column is man's uh, destruction of man himself. And his judge, he's, he, reap, he sows the wind and he reaps the whirlwind. Okay, if you take that column and the judgment column, you've got the writer on the white horse conquesting and Babylon on the other side of your chart is destroyed. So the people that are riding out to conquer are the ones who are destroyed. The lament, by the way, is the rest of the people who are unsaved wondering what happened to poor old Babylon. Now, the next one is the rider on the red horse, which is war. And now on the other side of the chart, you've got the fourfold hallelujah, the Lord God reigns. Why is the hallelujah? It is simple. There is no more war. So we're celebrating because there is no more war. The next one down on level three is famine. And on the other side, what do we have? We have the marriage feast of the lamb. There is no more famine. And then you've got the rider on the ashen horse, who is death. And on the other side, you have the coming of the king of kings. This is Christ, who is the source of life, and death has been destroyed. So you've got the judgment column correcting what we have done with this earth. Next one is the martyrs under the altar. And what are they saying? They're saying, how long, O oh Lord, how long will we have to suffer? And on the other side, you have the beast and the false prophet judged, and he is the one that killed the martyrs. So they have got their justification on the other side of the chart. That's how long it takes. The next one is the terror and the great day of wrath. On the other side, you have Satan judged and doomed and the Gog and Magog war. The, the terror is caused by our guilt and Satan's work on this earth. Satan is judged and Gog and Magog are destroyed. By the way, I have always heard about the great battle of Armageddon. There is no battle in the book of Revelation. There is no battle anywhere in the book of Revelation. There is no battle of Armageddon because you can't fight against God. Like I said, God sneezes and you disappear. Okay, the last one is the sealing of the saints. The last saint is sealed at the day of judgment. At the white throne judgment, the books are opened and all the names of those people who are sealed are in the book of life of the Lamb. And that's what I've got on the chart. <laughs> Okay, let's close with prayer. Let's see. Gosh, that was great. When he was working on it, we've done like how many versions of this? Because every time I printed it up, then he would say, oh, I added another thing to it. But, but see, when you look at it, it was like, oh, I don't, what do I do with this? And so then now as you explain it, it's like crystal clear. This is awesome. The whole book of Revelation in one page. <laughs> How amazing is that? And what, I'd like to see what you do with the rest of the Bible. Could you do it in like one page? Would that, that would be great. That was phenomenal. Golly, this is so good. And once you lay it out like this, 
the parallels are wonderful, right? You can see the wisdom of Jesus to put it together that way. And again, um, if some believer in the Roman Empire had carried this around with them, you know, and there was some accusation of, oh, you're a Christian, we'll throw you in prison. And then they look at this, they go, eh, whatever, you know, mythology. So um, fantastic. Thank you. Thank you so much. Let's give him another hand. Can we do that? Yes. Can't wait to see what you do next week. That'll be great. (laughs) All right. So where we are in uh, chapter 15 is uh, talking about the reapers. And so now you know what the reapers are about. So uh, we've got the two two reapers, and we'll talk a little bit about that. So we're in verse 14, and we'll go to verse 16. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head, and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. So the clue there that we're talking about Jesus is the reference to one like the Son of Man, right, with the crown of gold on his head. That was often a designation that Jesus used of himself in the New Testament to, uh, to depict who he was. It was also a reference to the Old Testament, because oftentimes the Old Testament, in looking at Jesus, uh, at the coming uh, Messiah, would reference him. So an example of that is in Daniel 7. There I have it printed for you. He says, In my vision at night I looked, and there before me was one like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the Ancient of Days, that would be God, and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away and his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, remember this is spoken to and through the prophet Daniel. So what's going on in Daniel's life that this would have been a really comforting message? Where is Daniel when he hears this? Yeah, he's in Babylon. He's been carried off into exile. So he's not even anywhere near his homeland and the people with him that went with him or that were carried off with him. So if you think about it from that point of view, that here by God's plan, they were carried off. That was part of the, part of the plan that God had. But they're in, in, in a foreign land. There, there's some struggle there. There's some, some uh, a lack of normalcy. There's a sense of uh, when do we go back if do we ever get to go back. So you, you can kind of put yourself in, in, in their shoes, the, the struggle of that. And so here comes a message from God, and basically the message of God is stay faithful to God who is faithful to his promises. And that's the, that's the theme. We see that all the way through uh, the book of Revelation, but for sure we see that in these particular verses uh, as they pertain to the Old Testament, that even though life as we know it feels like everything is up in the air and nothing is the way it was. Gee, anybody feeling that way these days? 
Yeah, just when we get all can put our masks away, there's some wondering of, oh gosh, do we have to get them out again? Where did I leave them? You know, that kind of thing, okay? Um, and so the turmoil of that, the, the wrestling of that, you know, I just can't wait for that moment when somebody says, looks at me and says, how come you're not wearing your mask? I mean, I just can't wait for that, right? And it, it's just going to be, that's how it's going to be, right? It's going to be that way. And, and so the, the temptation is to just throw up your hands and say, what is the point? Well, the point is to be faithful to God who is faithful to his promises. That's the bottom line. Be faithful to God who is faithful to his promises. And as Bob pointed out, um, this is all kind of part of God's plan. It's just a little hard for us because we're up there down here looking up at it. And it seems very chaotic. It seems very disjointed. It seems very much like, oh, does he really know what he's doing? And he's looking from down up above and saying, oh, yeah, this is this how it's supposed to be. So that's a little bit hard for us sometimes to grab onto. So the, the Son of Man, Jesus, is called upon to do uh, the reaping because the time has come to, uh, to do that. And so if you look at John 4, uh, Jesus in, in the Gospel of John, he talked about that. He said, don't you have a saying, it's still four months until the harvest? I tell you, open your eyes and look at the fields. They are ripe for harvest. Even now the one who reaps draws a wage and harvests a crop for eternal life, so that the sower and the reaper may be glad together. Who is the sower? God, yeah, Jesus, God, yeah, Jesus. What what is he sowed? What is the seed that has been sowed and then blossoms into uh, the fruit? His word. Yeah, see, that's what the parables are about. Remember the parable of the sower? Goes out and throws the seed out there and some lands on good soil and rocky soil and, and the path and all those kinds of things. Okay, that's the, the Jesus sows the word. And the word takes root where it takes root. And so the, the cool thing about this is that when you think about eternity and judgment day, that there will be great joy among the one that did the sowing, which is Jesus, right? And the one who does the reaping, which also is Jesus. How, how, how cool is that? All right. So that, that's the imagery of, of judgment day. All right. Now, verse 17. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel, who had charge of the fire, came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the, the sharp sickle. Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, when the grape, because the, its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered its grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside the city, and blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. All right, so now we get the picture of the reaping that takes place of unbelievers. So Jesus is, is harvesting the believers, if you think of it that way, and then the, uh, the other angel is harvesting the unbelievers. And so let's take a look at Romans 1.18, because again, you get this imagery of God's wrath. The idea of God's wrath is not very popular today. Okay, that goes without saying. If you you, uh, look on social media, or you just listen to people who are talking about 
belief in God or their perspective of God. All right. The verse that often gets quoted the most is the verse where it says God is love. This does not look like God is love to me. Right. And that's because the Bible presents God from a two sided coin. On the one hand, God is love. He's the loving father. He's the the father of the prodigal son and all those uh, great parables that Jesus described the everlasting uh, uh, seeking that the father does toward his wayward children, the shepherd who goes after the sheep, the one that that is uh, continually wandered off, and and he leaves the 99 and he goes after the one sheep and brings them back to the fold. Those are beautiful images of God as a a loving father, uh, uh, totally patient, totally interested in what is best for his, uh, his, his children. That is not what the picture here is, because the other side of God is that he's a just judge who looks at sin, especially if sin is not repentant, if sin is not forgiven, if sin is not covered by his grace. And when that happens, then the person's uh, sin is judged. Bob. I would just like to say, we sing about this every time we sing the battle hymn of the Republic. I don't think they realize what we're saying, though. What, are we, what part are we singing it when we sing it? The great, where the grapes of wrath are stored. Yes. He loosed his faithful lightning like his terrible swift sword, which is also in the coming of Christ with the sword. That's right. And out of his mouth. That's right. So we sing Revelations whether we like to hear it or not. <laughs> I wonder how often we sing stuff and we don't have any idea about what it is we're singing, right? Oh, it's a catchy tune. I really like it, you know. And we're singing about God's judging us, you know, in some way. So great, excellent point, excellent point. But let's look at Romans 1.18. Notice what he says. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all what? Godlessness and the wickedness of people who do what? Suppress the truth by their wickedness. God's pretty, God's pretty clear about how he feels about the idea that people suppress his truth. Okay? And there is a ton of that going on today. Where people have decided that there's no such thing as absolute truth. There's no such thing as moral truth. There's no such thing as biblical truth. It's all relative. Okay? And what that means is you get to decide what your truth is, and I get to decide what my truth is, and don't you dare tell me that my truth isn't true. Now, people can live that way. But there's a consequence to that. And the consequence to it is not only what happens eternally, but also what happens now. Because if I decide that my truth serves me the best, but it happens not to serve you, tough, tough, because it's my truth. And who are you to tell me that my truth, who serves me quite well? The problem is it doesn't serve me well, does it? Because when it pulls me away from God, what comes in its place is a basic fear and lack of security in life. Even though I may think I'm secure, and even though I may think I have it all together, from, uh, from a human perspective, maybe I think I do. But because we are, we are born with and we are created with that sort of innate connection to God, a natural connection to God, okay? It doesn't mean that we believe in Him, but that connection's there. If I sever that then what am I doing to that basic core sense of belonging and being loved and being cared for in life? I have to manufacture it somehow myself. And that's the problem that a lot of people have. Okay? So it's very, it's very, 
it's not inconsequential when people make that choice to suppress the truth. And wickedness has a way of doing that. Sometimes we think that the, the act of suppressing the truth is purely an academic exercise, right? That somehow that means that um, I know what the truth is in my head and then I suppress it, right? I say, oh, I don't believe it. That's a, like it's an academic intellectual thing to do. Wickedness doesn't really kind of fit the bill or is not limited to a cognitive activity. So how would a wicked life, if you live a wicked life without God, how could that result in suppressing the truth about God? Think about that. Your, it would be your example to other people. That would certainly affect them. But I'm asking here about how does, that, how's your, how does a wicked life, an evil life, suppress the truth? It also silences God. Do what? It also silences God. You have no connection. You would have no connection, so you're severing the connection by your actions and by what you do. But how often have you found this to be true? that what you do repeatedly determines what you believe. In other words, if you keep doing the same thing over and over and over and over again, eventually that becomes your truth. That becomes what you, what you are. That becomes who you are. And so there is something to be said for the idea that the way that we live our lives reflects the faith that we have, and the faith that we have reinforces the way we live our lives. Okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll come back to this. Let's look at the next verses. He says, I saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues. Last, because with them God's wrath is completed. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire. And standing beside the sea, those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. I love going, uh, Bob, I love going back to your chart. I knew that sevens were prominent in Revelation. But until you just put that on that chart, I thought, holy cow, it really is, right? Seven, 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 seven everywhere. That was really great. So notice again at the end, seven angels with the seven of the last plagues, again, because uh, with them God's wrath is completed. So let's look at uh, a verse in Romans 2 that talks a little bit about, a little bit more about this idea of God's wrath. He says, but because of your stubbornness and unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath, when his righteous judgment will be revealed. God will repay each person according to what they've done. To those who by persistence in doing good seek glory, honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and who reject the truth and follow evil, there will be wrath and anger. There will be trouble and distress for every human being who does evil, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. But glory, honor, and peace for everyone who does, who does good, first for the Jew, and then for the Gentile, for God does not show favoritism. So I put a question up on the board. Does God keep score? Hmm. Mixed opinions here this morning. Does God keep score? Why keep a score when you already know it? Say that again or say it differently. Why keep a score when you already know it? Bob said that God already knew how it was all going to play out. He's just looking down. 
Oh, sure, quoting Bob. <laughs> well, maybe I'm the second opinion here. Maybe that's a good point. That's a good question, though. Okay, God, but then you could sort of take that same question and say, well, if God already knows everything, how it's going to turn out, you know, what chance is there for anybody? Like, what if God already knows you're not saved? Ooh. Ouch. Hmm? Great question. Do what? Say it again? If the book of deeds, then, I mean, why keep a book if you're not keeping score? I know. That's what I'm thinking. And I'm looking at this, and it says, you are storing up wrath for yourself. That kind of sounds like God's keeping score. God, God keeps watch. He does that. Yeah. Yeah. You know, he knows everything about all of us. Yeah. The score depends on how you describe score. He doesn't say, do for you today and nothing for you tomorrow. He just knows what's going on. He does. So there's a little bit of a trick question there, isn't there? <laughs> I've never done that before here. Yeah. Um, if you look at this verse by itself, or the set of verses, yeah. it jumps out as works righteousness. It kind of, kind of does. Hand, if you look at it, it's God's continuation of, of, of His creation. Yeah. Your works that you can that you do today, yeah, all have consequences. Sure. And I'm reading it that way. Yeah. Whatever you're doing today, you're going to pay the price for it. Either a good price or a bad price. Okay. So it's your consequences that God has left you with. Yeah. And you're, and, and yet, God is negating. So it's, a, it's, all, it's all for naught because it's those who believe come with me and those who don't, don't. So who's he keeping score of? And I'm going back to my question. Who, who's yeah, but who's getting stored? Who's for whom is he storing up stuff? Storing up wrath? Unbelievers, unbelievers. Yeah, not the believers. So a way here's a way to think about it, and to visualize it. Okay, so here's God triangle. Here's you and me, sinner. Okay, and so the idea would be to say that every sin, which would be the product of my natural selfishness and my natural desire to make it all about me and nobody else, okay? That's the definition of sin, okay? God is aware of, right? But if there's not something added to that sinner, then the only thing that sinner has to look forward to is the wrath of God. Because even though God loves everybody, there still is that judge part, right? There still is that part that says you sin, you die. And without something else happening to that sinner, then the only thing that sinner is subject to is the judge who says, be ye therefore perfect even as I am perfect. Ouch. It's, you, can't, you can't do it. It's a helpless and hopeless condition that is natural to every single one of us unless something else happens to us that would change that dynamic, that would change that equation. Okay, we have a couple hands up that I'll get to. Yeah, Milo. I would look at it as he put, putting it on a balance scale. 
Okay, a balanced scale. Yes. Where you put the bad you've done. Yes. And the good you, and as well as you, if you believe. Okay. And then you look at it whether one would outweigh the other. Yeah. So how do you know that the good you've done is enough to overcome the bad you've done? Well, that's a good question. <laughs> <laughs> I would look at it that if you believe in God and in Jesus, that would be a big ad on the right side of the scale. <laughs> and the beauty of it is that eliminates the scale. See, that's the beauty of it. Because without it, without Jesus, then the scale is the perfect, the perfect image of that. And then what, what happens then to a person's joy and security in life if you're constantly thinking about all the bad stuff you did, whether you even knew that you did or not? And of course, other people will remind you of the, <laughs> that. And so then that's always weighing on your heart and you have nothing else that could like balance that out or even would even like maybe tip the scale in your favor. What kind of life would that be? It'd be a terrible life because you're constantly living in fear like, oh, gosh, I remember like the three things I did yesterday. But whew, good thing I did four things also to overcome that. But what if the four things don't count nearly as much as the three things? What a terrible life to live. And there are tons of people that are living that life thinking, oh, that's a joyful life. That is not a joyful life. OK, so that's a that's a great example, Milo, of what you just said. Yeah. Somebody else. Yeah, Glenn. What God is looking for when he looks at us is the blood of Christ. Okay. We are washed in his blood. So what you're talking about is the thing that has to happen, the thing that has to change the dynamic is the covering of God's grace by the blood of Jesus. See, but that had to come from God. That couldn't come from me. It a sinner can't unsin himself, right? Because you're born in sin, so like, you know, how are you going to do that? You can't do it. And so all the good that you can do is still staying by sin, so what are you going to do then? You can't, you can't undo the sin. So God says, I'm going to undo the sin. And the way I'll do it is by having a perfect one, namely me, come and live perfectly. And then with living perfectly, sacrifice or shed blood, pay the price. The price is paid for freedom. The, the price is paid for forgiveness. The price is paid for eternal life. And the only thing the sinner has to do is say yes to it. That's what faith is. Faith says yes to it. If I say no to it, then what am I left with? Now I'm a sinner, and now I'm subject to the full breath and wrath of God. See? And so that's the tragedy of it, is that he offers it as a free gift, and he just says, say yes to it. And we go, oh, no, I can't say yes to it. Yes. So, the book of Deeds. The book of what? Deeds. Deeds. The book of Deeds, yeah. 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 Um, Is it, okay, you have the book of life. Yeah, the book of life. Right. Is the book of Deeds for believers and non-believers? Is he keeping track of everybody? Am I putting a little panic in your uh, thoughts on that? Yes. Okay. All right. So to get a grasp of this, of the Romans verse, as as Carl pointed out, you got to go back to Matthew 25. In Matthew 25, it gives the picture of Judgment Day. 
right? And in the picture of Judgment Day, Jesus talks about uh, the good works that the believers did, and he talks about the works of evil that the unbelievers did, okay? And if you look at that and you think, gosh, maybe works are what saves me, because the works have to do with, well, the good people do the good works and the bad people do the bad works, and so if there's enough of one over the other, well, then that saves you. And it sort of takes out of the picture the idea that the blood of Jesus does any good at all, right? That's what it sort of sounds like. Ah, but if you look at Matthew 25, the picture is, is that everybody's gathered before the shepherd. And what is the very first thing he does before he ever mentions anything of works that you did in your life? He separates the sheep from the goats. He separates, he separates the believers from the unbelievers, the saved from the unsaved, the people who said yes from the people who said no. So you see, the separation is based on, did you believe or didn't you? Did you trust Jesus or didn't you? Did you hold to the truth or didn't you? It's kind of an either or. You can't just say, well, half the time yes, half the time no. You can't go there. It's not, it's not going to be like that. But then after the separation occurs of faith from unfaith, then he talks about the book of deeds. See? And so the beauty of it is, is that all the good things... All the service things that the believers did. He says, oh, you were awesome. And then the believers go, Lord, we don't even remember doing half the stuff you're talking about. Right? And he goes, it doesn't matter. All those good things you did and even the ones you can't even remember, they are all listed here and you are the best ever. I love you. Isn't that great? Okay. Then he turns the second chapter of the book of deeds over. And he looks at the unbelievers and he says, here's all the things you should have done that you didn't do. And they're going to go, Lord, we don't even remember. We thought we were doing all the good things here. We thought we were. He might say you were, but they don't count for anything. Why don't they count for anything? Because they can't eliminate this. See, that's the problem. Okay, that's where. So the book of D's is, yeah, I, I, I would say there's, yeah, believers, unbelievers. But it, it, is it a blessing or a curse? For the unbeliever, it's a curse, right? And the amazing thing is, is that the unbelievers, and we think about that in our world today, there are tons of unbelievers doing good things. There's a lot of good being done by unbelievers. But at the end, it doesn't count for anything. And in fact, it's held against them. Because it becomes an attempt to curry favor with God, which if a sinner's doing that and he's not covered with the blood of Christ, then it's a life of futility. Does that feel better? Yes. Good. <laughs> Good. So I sort of deliberately led you down the path and then, but salvation at the end, I guess. So, okay, good. All right. So does that make sense in terms of when you look at the Romans 2 passage in light of Matthew? And we have to do that with scripture sometimes, don't we? We have to include other parts of scripture to interpret this part of scripture so that we have that assurance, because otherwise without it, it does kind of look and sound like uh, you better, you know, mind your P's and Q's because, you know, God is watching and keeping score. Yeah, he kind of is. But is it a blessing or a curse is the question. Okay. All right. Well, guess what? We've come to the end of the hour. And Bob, it will not be two years before we're done with this course. Okay. <laughs> I'm predicting that uh, probably toward the end of, um, sometime middle to the end of September, 
okay, is when we'll be done. And may, unless our Lord comes again before then, and so then we'll uh, figure out what to do with that. All right, well, let's close with prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for our time together. And thank you for the way that your word speaks to us in ways that, that can bring such comfort to us, and it does bring comfort to us, that, that especially the part about that we as sinners are helpless and hopeless to do anything about our sin. But that's the beauty of it. You saw that. And you recognize that and you said, well, then I'm going to fix that for you. I'm going to send Jesus to be your savior. And I'm going to send him in such a way that he pays the price for all the sin that you ever do. So that what covers you is the gift of my love, my grace and my forgiveness. Help us, Lord, to cherish that and not take it for granted. And then help us to share the joy of that with those around us. The world is so empty. The world is so frantic these days looking for the hope and the help that can really truly only come from you. And that help and that hope, Lord, can come through each of us as we share the good news of what Jesus did for us. So challenge us this week, dear Lord. Watch over us until we're together again. And uh, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.